Well, I hope your Bible's open to James. Let me read it for you, and uh, we'll dive into the Word of God. I'll begin at 1-2, and we'll actually, we'll just read through verse 4. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete lacking in nothing. I mean, the truth is, from the Word of God, as we established last week, that my faith, your faith, will be tested. It will be tried. It will be put into a process to be proving, if you will, its genuineness. And whenever you are put into a trial... That is the purpose, to strengthen your faith and to ultimately reveal the genuineness of your faith. I mean, the truth is, is that as a believer, you will face trials of correction or trials of perfection. I'll say it this way, when you are out of the will of God, God can sometimes send trials as a means of correction. I mean, you just have to think of Jonah, who was the runaway prophet, who was swallowed because he was running from the will of God, and that was a trial of correction. But then, on the other hand, there are trials of uh, perfection when we are in the will of God, and God sends the trials or allows the trials to perfect your character. And one would just have to think of the disciples getting into a calm sea. You remember that in the boat. And the boat suddenly, when they were out in the middle of the sea, they found themselves in the biggest storm of their life. The storm was perfecting their character, strengthening their faith. And so you'll meet these trials through correction or through perfection. But when God sends the trials, He always does so for the purpose of purifying your faith, strengthening your faith. Now you'll look at that word there in verse 2 when it says trials of various kinds. That word simply means to put to test. Okay, And a trial is any kind of distress that tests your faith. In other words, you're probably in one at some point even right now, and it's a distress. And it is testing your faith. And here in the text, when this testing takes place, it's always dictated or directed towards an end. And the end of it is to ultimately discover the quality of the person being tested. Now, James is asking you by the Spirit of God here, how should you respond to trials? And how you and I respond to trials reveals the maturity of our faith. So we're looking at this main banner here of faith is tested in trials, running from verse 2 down through verse 12. And we begin to look at the several factors, at several factors that help us understand his purpose in trials. And number one, we begin and we said that you must understand your response to life's trials. Verse 2, he simply said, count it all, what? 
joy. I mean, it seems so paradoxical, does it not? That in the midst of trial, you're to count it and to add it up and to deem it and regard it as joy. I mean, if, if we're just thinking outside the Scripture, we would usually think of trials as God's disfavor, not His blessing. But in fact, you would probably think just in our own humanness that you are thankful when you can avoid trials. In fact, if you're like me, sometimes you even thank God that you don't have someone else's trial. And so you say, shouldn't James say, count it all joy when you escape and dodge trials? But he doesn't. He says, count it all joy. And then we touched briefly on those words in verse 2, when you meet these trials. And we noted usually they're at the wrong time. In other words, James says they're inevitable. They're inescapable. They're unavoidable. In other words, you don't have to seek the trial. They're they're actually like a heat-seeking missile in some ways, seeking you. You don't have to go look for them because you're going to meet them. And it's not when, it's not if, but when. And then you'll note there in verse 2, he says you meet these trials. And you, remember, you become surrounded by these trials. And that word was used in Luke 10.30 of the man on his way from Jerusalem to Jericho. And he fell and was surrounded by the thieves. There was no warning. There was no warning sign. Thieves behind the corner. No. And in a a similar way we're on the road of life and the doctor calls and the pink slip arrives and the criticism starts and the fear seizes control and anxiety sets in and your body breaks and death enters and you are all of a sudden surrounded is the word there when you meet these trials and then James says there are various kinds And so as we look to the Word of God, I'd say, what is it with you? Maybe it's something in your future. Maybe it's an aspect of your finances. Maybe some find themselves in unemployment. Maybe it's a marriage. James just says they're all they're various, all sizes, all shapes, if you will, all colors. If it's unfulfilled dreams or unmet expectations, some are facing serious illness in our flock. Some are facing surgery. Many have health issues. There's conflict at times. There's divorce that sets in and the ongoing process of that. There's bitterness, disappointments. I mean, what a, they're myriad. They're, they're just, you're moving in life and it's not if, but when. And then you fall into them and you become surrounded by them and they take on all kinds of sizes and shapes. And how do you respond with trials? I'm asking you even this morning, is it with joy? That's what James said, and we looked at that last week. Or is it with frustration? And James here exhorts us to respond with joy, but he tells us why. And that brings us to the second principle. Not only must you respond in joy, but you must understand the rationale for life's trials and obvious Here is why James says you could respond with joy. Here's why. Look at verse 3. He says, For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, or the subject of endurance. Here's the rationale for the joy. That when trials come, 
they come to test or prove the quality of our faith and produce in us this quality of steadfastness. Now, there in verse 3, we kind of left off there that the testing of your faith, and we talked about how different Bible characters were tested, but I think it's interesting that that word for testing of our faith is only found here in James and in one other place in all of the New Testament, and it's First Peter. In fact, look over there just for a second. Just turn to the right here. It's, this is the only other place, and so it's an interesting word for testing. You remember there in 1 Peter chapter 1, in verse 7, it says there, so that the genuineness, so that the, it actually says in verse 7, the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, uh, that perishes, though it is tested by fire, by fire, excuse me, may be found to result in the praise and the glory and the honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So it's only found in James and in 1 Peter 1.7. And it either can describe the testing, the process of testing, or the refining of something for the purpose of approval for the purpose of genuineness, that that which is being tested would come out approved or genuine. And I really believe the stress in James is on the approval of the proof of testing, whereas Peter, it's the result of testing. Enough for me to say that trials then are intended, sounds funny to say this, by God, not by Satan, okay? Okay? It's, they're intended by God to refine your faith. In other words, God allows trials and heats up these trials, if you will, of our faith in the crucible of suffering so that the impurities of your life and my life might be refined, might be rubbed off, if you will, so that we might become pure and more valuable to the Lord. And so he allows these things to test your faith to produce this quality of steadfastness. Now, I want to be clear here in verse 3 that the testing of faith then is not intended to determine whether a person has faith or not. It is intended to purify the faith that already existed. Remember, when we looked at Abraham, and we looked at Hezekiah, and we looked at Israel. They were all tested, and you will be tested. But you need to know something in the midst of a trial. And what you need to know is, look down at verse 3 again, that the testing of your faith, he uses this, produces steadfastness. The ideal of endurance, it produces perseverance. And we talked about that word to hupomene, to remain under the weight for a time. In fact, that's the picture there of steadfastness. It's being under a heavy load and resolutely staying there instead of trying to escape is the idea. Remember that Russian weightlifter held the bar until the bell was sounded. Now, what's fascinating about that little word there at verse 3, steadfastness, is it is in no way a passive resignation. It's not like you're just sitting under the weight just saying, okay, Lord, how long? That, that's not the word. 
The word here is not in any way passive, but it is a character that confronts difficulties head on and fights them with joy. It's very active. In fact, the commentator Hebert said endurance, speaking of steadfastness, is a tenacity of spirit which holds up under pressure while awaiting God's time for reward or dismissal. And so this is what you need to know, that this testing of your faith is producing this quality of steadfastness, of endurance, So, Grace Church, trials come with a purpose. And here's the reason for the joy. They bring the believer to the refiner's fire. And as the trials refine the impurities of motive and conduct, God begins to fashion and hammer out the character of endurance and steadfastness into us. And so here, the rationale for responding with joy is because the trial is working something in you, and it's called steadfastness. But look what he says. Fascinating verse 4. He says, let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. And so I take you from your response to the rationale to thirdly, your resolve in life's trials. I called it resolve because it is a resolve here. At verse 4 there, when it says, let steadfastness have its full effect, James is saying, the Word of God is saying, let steadfastness be carried out to full completion. In other words, you could even say, let it play out. Let it go the full course. Do not give up is what James is saying to you right now. You're under a weight. You're under a burden. You're in the midst of a trial. And verse 4 is a command. It doesn't look like it, does it, though? You just kind of read it and you think, ah, let this quality go. No, you are commanded. It is an imperative command to remain under. So here's what I wanted to tell you. Here's today the heart of the message. Your character of steadfastness and endurance and your ability to mature in the midst of a trial is not an automatic promise to you. That's hard for me to kind of say. And what I mean by that is just because you're in the midst of a trial, you are not guaranteed growth. You are not guaranteed maturity. You say, well, why not, Scott? Well, number one, you need to respond with joy. Number two, you need to understand the rationale. But thirdly, you've got to understand the resolve here of what the Spirit of God is telling you through the Word of God that you need to let steadfastness have its full effect. What James is saying here is that he's desirous that you do not break up the sequence. He is encouraging you to not abandon God's work by escaping the trial. In other words, I think what he's, he's encouraging us, but he says you could basically give up. You could become so defeated that you lose sight of the Lord. 
You could become so surrounded that all of a sudden you're in a spiral and you're going down. And James just says, hold up here. You, you remain under that weight. And as you're under that weight, the Word of God is saying, I'm commanding you to let steadfastness run its full course. But listen, unlike the weightlifter who holds the bar until the appointed time, you can complain. You can grumble. You can become bitter. You can run when all these tests come. So here's what's amazing. We all know that God's sovereign. But all I know is you could mess up in a certain sense, what God is trying to do. Just don't let it have its full effect in you. Remember Abraham? I mean, we, Abraham was a man of God. We know that. You know, he went out. I mentioned last week, stars of the sky, you know, sand of the seashore, so shall your descendants be. And I mentioned last week, from the time that the Lord came with the promise to him to the time that Isaac was born was 25 years. You say, well, that's a man of God. Well, that is a man of God, and he is a man of faith. But all I know, at one, at one time, he just didn't like the weight on him. He just didn't want to be under the, the pounds, if you will. He didn't want to wait on the Lord's promise, so he had a plan, and the plan was a woman named Hagar. And so rather than waiting on the promise of God, he supplanted the promise for his own way, and I'll tell you, Israel's battling today because of the birth of that child. So what I'm saying is, you can mess up the sequence, so can I. In other words, God's trying to grow you. He's trying to build you. I'll show you that in a minute. And we're breaking up the sequence by becoming a Houdini artist and escaping the trial. In fact, I'm thinking of Joseph. I mean, sometimes when I think of let steadfastness have its full effect, I, Joseph, you know, we, we like that guy. We, we know how God sovereignly used that guy. And there would be no nation. It, it's hard to even say that because God's sovereign. We, there is a nation. He preserved the nation through Joseph in Egypt. And we look at Joseph and think, ah, oh, there he went. He was going to be in a pit he got on a camel, he's on his way to Egypt, and he rises to the throne. And I'd say, time out. It wasn't that simple, was it? It's never that simple. Your faith and my faith to be a man of God and a woman of God is never that easy. God's producing something in you that doesn't happen in a microwave. You, you've got to remain under that. How, and the, I could ask you the question, how long? from when Joseph was carried off or rode off in the camel to when he was raised up to be Pharaoh's second man. Did we talk about I don't think we talked about that last week. And I don't know what you think about that. You think, Scott, I've never thought about that. He just got off on the camel. He was in the pit. They were going to kill him. Then the traitors came and they pulled him out of the pit because the one brother said, don't bring you know, our grandpa's or our dad's gray hair down to Sheol. So they sold him off and he goes off. But what I'm telling you is, that's about a 13-year process from Joseph being carted off. And my point would be, is though we like Abraham's faith 
it's hard to wait for something for 25 years. And though you like Joseph's faith of how God used him, it took him around, biblically, around 13 years in his life before he sat on that throne second in command. And I would tell you that Joseph had a hard life. Did he not? And so sometimes we look at the man's faith or the woman's faith, and we don't know what they had to go through to get to that point. But for him, it took a long time. How about Moses? It's Moses, the great man of God. Moses, the leader of millions of people in Israel. You know what God did to him? Remember when he was there, obviously, in Egypt, and he saw somebody mistreating a Jewish man, and he rose up and he killed what? An Egyptian. You know the count. I don't have to turn you there. He killed the Egyptian. And what's fascinating is in the book of Acts, it says that, it, it says this in Acts, that Moses supposed that it was the time that the Lord was going to raise him up. Now that's fascinating to me because at 40, he had an idea that he might be a deliverer. But he acted out of step and out of sequence. And instead of letting God raise him up, he rose up, killed the Egyptian, and God sent him to the backside of the desert for how long? 40 years. So God spent 80 years preparing Moses for 40 years of service. I mentioned last week the Apostle Paul, though he preached immediately after he was struck on the Damascus Road. You add up the account in Galatians 1 and 2. It was about 14 years before Paul went back into service after that initial. My point to you is this doesn't happen overnight. And James' encouragement to you right now, whatever your trial is, okay, whatever your burden is, whatever your physical difficulty is right now, whatever your financial difficulty, whatever your marital difficulty, the Lord's doing something in you. And he's trying to work and produce this quality of endurance in you and me. And you need to hold under that weight. And you need to let steadfastness run its course. And he's saying, don't quit. Because he's producing this quality in you. Stick to it, if you will. And we develop, listen, we don't like to hear this, steadfastness in the crucible of suffering. Okay? And if you and I were writing our own script, you wouldn't write that script. You'd write a perfect family. You'd write your successful plan. You'd write what your grandkids would look like. You'd write what your children would look like. And somehow, listen, in the midst of all this thing, God says, I love you so much that I'm not, I'm not going to use the word allow a trial. I'm going to send you the trial. I'm going to send you these things because I'm doing something and working something in you. In fact, look over just a few chapters. If you ever notice this same word, James chapter 5. Let me give you a word picture of this. And, and you say a, a picture of what? A picture of steadfastness. Uh, it's the word for endurance. It's that word hupomene. And it says this in James 5.10. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. He said, behold, watch this, and here's our word, 511, we consider those blessed who remained, what? 
steadfast. There's the principle. They're blessed. And now watch the example. You have heard of the steadfastness of who? Job. And you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. You say, well, Scott, what does steadfastness look at? Just think of Job. His wife said, curse God and what? Die. And here's Job, just, just, just holding on, just waiting for the judge, to, just holding the weight, just hooping. He's just remaining under. And in the midst of it, God's producing and working that quality in Job to make him a man of God. Now, that, that's hard because those trials were hard for him. But listen, I love that little line there. We consider those blessed. Why? Because God perfected them who remain steadfast. And you have heard of this in the life of Job. Look over just for a moment to the book of Romans, will you? The book of Romans, and I think you've seen this before with your eyes. The context here isn't one of trials, but it's one of suffering. But remember this in Romans 5, in verse 3, where he's talking in verse 2, he says, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And in Romans 5, 3, more than that, we rejoice, similar, in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces what? Endurance. It produces same word. You say, well, why does the ESV use endurance here, but steadfastness over in the book of James? Don't know. We can ask that little, we could ask the guy who, who made the distinction there. It's the same word. It's hupomene. So look at it again. More than that, we rejoice in our trials knowing that the suffering is producing endurance. And then here it is, verse 4. And endurance produces character, and character produces hope. So that trial, that suffering is producing that in you. Look over in Romans chapter 12. There again is that word. It's a great word where he says there, and it's a little different in Romans 12, 12, rejoice in hope. And then it says, in a little different way, be patient and it says in tribulation, or be patient. The idea is in the context of a tribulation or a trial, and be constant in prayer. The idea there in verse 12 where it says uh, be patient is be preserving in prayer. And so listen, you've got a trial. You've got something you can't control. You've got a person you can't control. You've got a bill you can't control. You've got an ex-spouse that you can't control. You've got something in your body that you can't control. And here, the Lord is saying, listen, here's your resolve. You've got to let endurance run its full course. Turn, turn just for a second to the book of Hebrews. Let me just show you this. There's just a, some analogies I want to show you. And you know this. After the chapter in Hebrews 11, we come to Hebrews 12. And I say this to encourage you, and you know this text. Romans 12.1, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely 
and let us run with, what does he say? Endurance, hupomene, the race that is set before us. You run the race, you're not running a sprint. You're running the race, and you've got to run with endurance. So listen, I just want to encourage you. Your life is not out of control. It may feel that way. But listen, you've got to run. And you've got to run, if you will, with endurance. You've got to run kind of holding, if you will, this weight and the one that is set before us. Of course, the greatest example, understatement of of this the, the greatest example of hupomene is who that's the next verse in hebrews 12:2 when it says looking to jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith very interesting who for the joy that was set before him what did he do he endured the cross are you not glad that he endured the cross i mean i'm Smiling. Are you not in glad that he endured the cross? He could have called on a legion of what? Angels. He's our greatest example. In his humanness, he could have picked everybody up and raised them up into the sky. I mean, he could have done whatever he wanted to. Could have called on a thousand, you know, legions, if you will, the, the angels, myriads and myriads of angels. But he didn't. He endured the cross. Isn't that a great thing? And so I just say, listen, in his humanness, he endured and you can endure. And in Job, with all that he went through, he endured and we counted those blessed who endured. And Jesus here endured the cross. So listen, the Lord is using your trial, the discomfort in your life to develop steadfastness in you. And let me just say it this way, that that type of learning does not come by reading. It does not come by listening to a sermon. In this case, it doesn't even come by prayer. It comes through trials. Thank the Lord for them. And I don't mean that in a giddy way. And I don't think James is saying count it all joy with frivolity. That's not his point. You count it a rational joy because what God is doing in you and what he's producing in you and working in you is steadfastness. And the only way he can work that part of the character in you is through trials. But look back to James. Look look at the text more closely. He says in verse 4, let steadfastness have its full effect. You might ask the question, what exactly is the full effect? And no virtue, no singular virtue is named. And it's funny to read what some people think the full effect is, but I think you would agree with me. The full effect is simply the next statement, is it not? Look at the text. Let steadfastness have its full effect. Here's the full effect. That you may be perfect, that you may be complete, and that you may lack in nothing. So watch this. Steadfastness then, or endurance, hear me, is not the bottom line in what God is producing. It leads to something greater. It leads to something even more important. It leads, in a framework, we'll just say, to spiritual maturity. And so I take you from the response, the rationale, your resolve to stick with it to finally your reward 
in life's trials. Your reward. And here is the reward. He states it in three God-ordained intentions in the midst of a trial. And the first one is maturity. Maturity. Look what it says there in verse 4. That you may be perfect. The idea there is maturity. That word teleos is not the ideal of sinless perfection. You say, well, that's what he's after, sinless perfection. No, he's not after that. Just go over to chapter 3, verse 2. You know he already said this, and we'll look at that. For we all stumble in what? Many ways. He's not talking about sinless perfection when he says in one four that you may be perfect. He's talking about maturity. He, he's talking about this, that the Word of God is saying that you, as a believer, ought to grow up, and me. We ought to be mature. We ought to be fully grown, is, is the idea. It's adulthood as compared to being a child. So God sends trials to perfect you into spiritual maturity. Now, when we really begin to think about it that way, we'll be able to count it all joy. Glance down in chapter 1 of James in verse 12. There it is again. Not only is it joy, but blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. He's blessed. Why? Because if he remains steadfast... You are in the process of being spiritually mature. I mean, the truth is, God does not desire for you to be a spiritual baby the rest of your life, throwing temper tantrums because you did not get your way. And I know some people who do precisely that. You say, well, why? Well, they get rid of the trial. They, they chuck it off them. And God wants to perfect you. He wants you to be perfect, if you will. But the ideal is to be mature. Let me, let me show you a couple places where that word is used. Look in Colossians. Just go back, just, just so you can see what this concept of uh, maturity is. It's in that great text in Colossians, in chapter 128, when Paul's giving the reason for his apostolic ministry. And he says in Colossians 128, Him we proclaim warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom, and here it is, that we may present everyone, what does he say? Mature in Christ. That's the same word for perfect. Paul looks at his ministry, and he looks at it and says, here's why I'm here. We're proclaiming him, he says in 28. We're teaching everyone. We're teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present every man, the New American Standard says, mature in Christ or complete in Jesus Christ. So he's building maturity into you. In fact, look over to Colossians 4. You'll note that this type of maturity that we're looking at in James comes in trial, but there was this guy, you remember in Colossians 4.12, his name was Epaphras. Maybe this is some of you in our own church. 4.12, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you always, struggling on your behalf in his prayers that you may stand, here's our word, mature 
and fully assured in the will of God. So I find it fascinating that Epaphras was praying for spiritual maturity. Paul said we proclaim him and we teach him. So listen, if I said to you that there's probably, I don't know, if you think there's another one, let me know. There's probably three ways that we're going to grow in our Christian life. Three ways. One of them is through the Word of God. God's going to use His Word to mature the saints. He's going to take the Word both corporately and individually and cause you to stand as an adult in the faith. The other things that that he's going to use is here, he's going to use prayer. And Epaphras prayed that these people would stand, he said, mature and fully assured. And then the third thing is trials. He is going to send trials into your life to cause you to mature. So he uses his word, he uses prayer, and he uses trials. And rather than looking at trials as your enemy... Not easy to say. Look at trials as your friend, that you're becoming mature in Christ. So the purpose then of trials is to produce godly character, steadfastness, but the, that leads to something even greater, and it's maturity, full-grown adulthood. One more scripture here. Look over at Ephesians. Look back there for a second, because I'm going to ask the question, what does maturity look like? Okay, we, we said, okay, it's an adult. You're not a child. Okay, you, in your thinking, you need to be mature. Paul said in, stay in Ephesians 4, but Paul said in 1 Corinthians 14, 20, he said, do not be children in your thinking. He says, be infants in evil. He said, but he said, in your thinking, be mature. So we need to be an adult. We need to Think mature, if you will. The writer Hebrews in 6.1 says we need to press on to maturity. So listen, this is why we teach the Word of God, right? We do not want our church to be spiritually immature. I do not want your family or my family to be spiritually immature. We want to raise adult Christian families and young children who go on to adulthood. I spent some time yesterday with one of my family's members, and she was telling me how hard it's been when she's working with certain children in a school district because there's anger in their hearts, and they've separated some of these kids. They have to. And you look at some of those kids, and byproduct of obviously some unhealthy families, but that's hard because you see that, and you see people that can get locked into patterns. Listen, in the Christian faith, We want to go on to adulthood. We want to go on to maturity. You might say, what does it look like? Well, look at Ephesians 4.13. Here, Paul says, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, and then he says this, to what? Mature, there's our word, manhood. He wants us to grow, to be unified in our faith, have a knowledge of the Son of God, and He doesn't want us to be spiritual babies. He wants us to be, to mature manhood. And then you ask the question, what does that look like? Next phrase. To the measure of the stature of the fullness of who? Of Christ. Listen. God wants you to be like Jesus Christ. 
ever the goal of your life and my life is to ever be more and more perfected into the image of Jesus Christ. And because God cares more about your holiness than he does your happiness, he might make the things around you difficult. So you look up onto the person of Christ and you become more like him. So the purpose of trials is to produce godly character steadfastness, but it leads to Christ's likeness as you let steadfastness have its perfect result. So why does he allow the trials? To produce Christ in us. And until, and ultimately, 1 John, you remember, says, when we see our Lord, we will be what? Like him, for see him as he is, right? But until we get to that point, you and I are a work under construction, okay? Ever, God's just chiseling. He's just hammering. And, you know, I don't mean that in a wrong way. He's just taking the hammer. And I mean this, God's being gracious. And he's just chiseling parts of your character that aren't whole. Parts of your personality that don't reflect Christ. Part of your heart that gets caught up with materialism. And God's going to allow things, and he's just taken, if you will, and chiseling because he wants you to become more like Christ. But there's a second reason, not only maturity. Go back to Jude, and you can see it right there. It's not Jude, but James. Go back to the book of James. He says not only does he want you to be mature, but he says in verse 4, that he wants you to be complete. You say, well, those, some commentators said they're, they're redundant. Ah, I don't think it's redundant. I think the word complete just means without blemish. It's another way to look at it. It, it means to be entirely whole in every part. In other words, it's not to be deficient in any way. And God wants you to be like His Son. He's going to use His Word. He's going to use prayer. But He's going to use trials. And their goal is to mature you. No wonder He says, count it all joy. And the goal here is to produce in you, in verse 4, the ideal of being complete. You know, I, I think of a, of a baseball player. I played baseball at college where Tommy Barrington played for... A little bit. You, you sometimes would say of a certain baseball player, he's like a five-tool player. Yeah, and I don't. I think I mentioned this one time. I, I forgot what that is, but he could hit for average. He could hit for power. He could run the bases. He can throw the ball. And I, I, maybe there's. In other words, they would describe sometimes a, a player that man. This guy is a five-tool player. What they mean is he's a complete player. And the point is, when you look at an athlete, you need an athlete to be a complete player. You can't have deficiencies in your game or they will expose you in a heartbeat. Once they found out that after Michael Jordan left the Bulls and he went to go play, I was living in Chicago at the time on the Chicago White Sox, and once they found out that Jordan could not hit the curveball, his baseball career was over. Because you don't think a, a guy pitching is going to throw him a fastball. He's going to throw him a curveball. If you can't hit the curveball, lights out, you're done. Hang the jersey up. And he did. And he did it fairly quick because they exposed a weakness. Listen, in the Christian faith, God wants you to be whole. He does not want you or I to be a spiritual baby all your life. So he's going to take his word, take prayer. But here in our context, use trials. And he's going to perfect you in that so that your character becomes whole. 
Maybe that baseball illustration wasn't a good one. One time I had the privilege to meet Elizabeth Elliot. I had to drive her, you know, the great woman of God. I had the privilege to drive her with a few people from San Diego to an event that she was speaking at. And, you know, you're kind of in the car with her, and you just, man, this is a woman of God. This was her husband who, you know, had so many arrows in him from the Aka Indians that it took his life along with those other missionaries. This is a woman who's walked through trial. This is a woman who's been tested. But this is a woman that you think is complete. And you look at her and think, I want her faith, but I wonder how many of us would want her trial. I wonder of us, I wonder how many of us would be willing to go through what she went through to make her that woman of God. But listen, God in her life and in your life is bringing trials to mature you. He's bringing trials so that your character would be fully developed. And though those first two statements aren't enough, James hammers out a third reward in life's trials. Look at it in verse 4. He says there that you may lack in what? Nothing. I just call it equipped. That you may just lack in nothing. In other words, he's kind of hammered it from a couple of angles. God desires for us to be deficient in nothing, fully mature in character. Therefore, consider it all joy, the goal of which is maturity, completeness, and equipped for service. You say, okay, Scott, but what does that look like? Well, let me say this. Here's what it looks like in a statement, okay? When you're like Christ, and when you're mature, and when you're lacking in nothing, there will be an absence of division and strife. That's what it will look like. There will be an absence of division and strife, There will be the presence in my life and your life of the fruit of the Spirit. There will be a humility. There will be an ability to teach others. There will be insights into God's will and a greater likeness to the person of Christ. That's what happens when He begins to work this in you. So, I want to just ask you a question. Have you opened your hand to what the Lord's doing right now in your life? You say, what do you mean open your hand? Listen, I've I've been doing this for 25 years, and I've met people who are angry at God. You say, well, Scott, they're not a believer. Oh, no, they're a believer. They're bitter. Say, how bitter? Oh, bitter. Bitter. And, And they've got their fists like this to God, and and James is saying, open it up, and have you ever been able to thank him that he's weaning you from yourself, that he's weaning you from your pride, that he's weaning you from your materialism, that he's weaning you from everything that you would think would make your life perfect, and God comes in, and it's not like he's doing this because he doesn't love you. No, he is doing it because he does love you, and he wants you to be more like his son. Just a few things to think about as you go home today, okay? A few takeaways here, okay? Number one, number one, and I don't think this is in your notes. It's about thinking, not feeling. So what do you mean by that? Well, I'm just reviewing here. You're to count it all joy. It's not really how you feel. Some of you may live how you feel, and that's the problem. It's you've got to think on trials this way. You need to count it 
joy. In other words, it's a mathematical word. Add it up. Verse 3, you need to know. And the knowing there is observing. It's a rich, deep knowing. You need to think about your trials in a certain way. And I would submit to you that it is so easy to conceive in our minds of the victorious Christian life with God in the secret place of our devotional life where you get your Bible and you get your journal and you have time with the Lord and you think that's sanctification and that's growing, and I would say it is. Continue to do that. But James says this, that the road to maturity is thorny. It's an uphill battle. The process is painful, and the character that is chiseled into us is very hard one. It's just hard to grow. It's, and you say, well, why? Because I, it's hard. I think we, our will gets in there. You say, well, Scott, I, I can hear you saying that, but uh, I just can't handle it. I, I just, Scott, this issue I cannot handle it. And I want to say, yes, you can. You say, well, it's too difficult, and you're not in my shoes, Pastor. But listen, all I know, I'm going to bring you back to the text. You can say it with me, and you can change the word if you would like. You know it by heart. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has overtaken you, but remember that word temptation is the same Greek word for trial. So just say it this way. No trial has overtaken you, but such as is, what? Common to man. And God is faithful, and he will not allow you to be tried beyond your ability, but with every trial, he will provide you a way of, what? Escape. And then the last phrase, that you may be able to, what? Endure it. Listen, you can do it. You say, Christ has done it. He's gone before you. He endured the cross. Open your hand. Thank him for the trial. Let the joy come back into your life. Stop fighting against God and his will and his sovereignty. And so he says here to us as we reflect, it's about thinking, not feeling. And you will only be able to count it all joy when you see trials from that perspective. Secondly, let me just say this. Don't forget. It's about character over comfort. It's always about character over comfort. I like what Wearsby said. He said, our values determine our evaluations. He says, if we value comfort more than character, then trials will upset us. If we ev- he says, if we value the material and the physical more than the spiritual, then we will not be able to count it all joy. Wearsby said, if we only live for the present and forget the future, then trials will make us bitter and not better. So listen, we've got to value character over comfort. I'm thinking of Job in 23.10 when he said he knows the way I take. And when he has tried me, I will come forth and come out as gold. And so listen, remember what he's doing. And thirdly, I would just say it's about eternity over ease. Eternity over ease. If we could prize eternity, if we could just prize the things of heaven and not the things of the world, it would help us. You know, Philip Yancey, 
wrote a book, and the book was called Where is God When It Hurts? And he refers to an answer in that book by a theologian by the name of Helmut Delicki. And uh, this is the answer that Delicki gave when asked, what is the greatest defect of American Christianity? They asked this theologian, what's the greatest defect of American Christianity? And he said, quote, we have an inadequate view of suffering. And I think he's right. I think he's right. I just think we want it easy and we've got to value eternity over ease. I mean, praise God that John said we are God's children now in 3.2 of 1 John. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be what? Like him. So he has you in a renovation process. And that renovation process has started now. But one day you're going to be like him. But until that time... He's going to grow you and I for our good to strengthen our faith and to produce faith. And I'm thinking of Romans 8, 29, those whom he foreknew, he also predestined, remember what it says, to become conformed to the what? The image of his son. He's in the business of perfecting you towards that. Do you remember when Paul said to the Philippians, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. He's going to ultimately do that with you. So part of me wants to say, stop fighting. Stop holding on to what you cherish. He is going to complete that in you. He who began that work will complete it, but he's in that process even now. And so Paul said to the Corinthians, this momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. You have no idea what the Lord has in store for some of you. Paul said, as we look not at the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things unseen are eternal. And so he's working all of this in you, and I pray that we would value eternity over ease. Maybe you've heard the account of a, of a young boy who carried the cocoon, if you could picture this, of a moth into his house. And he wanted to watch the fascinating events that would take place when this moth emerged. And when the moth, if you can see this, finally started to break out of his cocoon, the boy noticed how hard it was for the moth. He was struggling to get out of the cocoon. And so the process was very slow. And what the young boy did as an effort to help, he reached down with his little fingers and widened the opening of the cocoon. And soon the moth was out of its prison. But as the boy watched, the wings of that moth remained shriveled. Something was wrong. And what the boy had not realized was that the struggle to get out of the cocoon was essential for the moss muscle system to develop. And in a misguided effort to relieve the struggle, the boy crippled the future of this creature because his muscles didn't grow. And I think the Lord is growing us all the time. 
And he just wants us to battle sometimes. You say, well, he's just making it hard for us. No, he wants you to be holy. And he wants you to be like his son. And so he's going to chip away at either the correction or the perfection to make us more like his son.